This is Kevin Evans with the chapter by chapter life class at Crossroads Assembly of God, Greenville. And uh, before we get started today, I have a couple of things I need to explain. Uh, I am recovering from bronchitis, which explains why my voice is a little weak today. And if it totally goes out on me, I'm going to happily hand this microphone to Ron Underwood, and he is going to finish this lesson all on his own. Uh, not really. Uh, secondly, uh, I have noticed when I attend our Wednesday night services that my pastor is preparing lessons that are based upon what we discuss in this class the previous Sunday. He is choosing his text from what I teach. And I feel that this is an enormous weight of responsibility that falls upon our shoulders. First of all, I, 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 I always feel certain there's four people out there listening online and one of them is probably me this afternoon to see how well I did. Now there's at least five. The pastor is listening to us, folks. So, so the pressure is on because whatever we discuss, here in chapter 10 in Matthew, is going to end up the Wednesday night service this following week. So we shall see, we shall see how my theory follows through. But uh, I, uh, I feel it's really important that we have deep insights today because it has long-range ramifications. Okay, uh, having said that, we are looking at ch uh, Matthew chapter 10 which is an interesting and oft misinterpreted chapter. And uh, in my interpretation of Matthew, I, I have decided in the Gospel of Evans, so don't, don't you know, write it down for being too sure, uh, that when Matthew wrote his book, he is not recording sh shorthand direct messages straight out of the mouth of Christ. I think he is gathering teachings of Christ. And I think Christ said everything that Matthew said he said, but I don't know that it was necessarily in the order that, that, that Matthew is presenting it. Matthew is condensing and simplifying as you do when you write a book. And he is trying to accurately capture Christ's ministry but I don't believe that it is a, 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 a literal recording of what happened. So when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount through those three chapters, I believe that he probably did deliver a Sermon on the Mount, but I, I think that Matthew only recorded certain stories that he had heard several times that Christ preached over and over again to the people because he, it's all organized, and it follows itself thematically, and it reads like a book. It doesn't read the way that you give a speech. Um, and so having said that, Matthew, who is trying to capture the ministry of Christ in a chronological order, gives us this very pivotal chapter in chapter 10. And Christ uh, gives a, a bunch of instructions to his disciples, or actually, they're the apostles, and we'll get to that in a minute. But when he does, uh, this, this message, this commission is for them. It's not for us. And many churches and a number of cults that I know of have taken things from chapter 10 and said, Christ said to do this, but it's out of context and it really doesn't apply to our world the way we live, nor did he really intend it that way. And so at the risk of inviting controversy, but of course that's what our class is all about, isn't it, inviting controversy, uh, I, I, I'm going to take that stand. And if you disagree with me, feel free to clash. All right, so having with all of that set up, uh, Matthew begins chapter 10 
by listing uh, the apostles. Excuse me. Okay, so let's read through verse 4. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave him authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And that is the first time that word is used in Matthew. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Okay, first of all, this is significant. Uh, Matthew, the, the, the list, the 12 are listed four times in Scripture, and they're always listed in this order. Peter is always first. In fact, and, and Andrew is always second, and, and, and so on. Um, that is because, we assume, in Hebrew uh, tradition, if you're listing a bunch of people, a men, you list from the oldest to the youngest. And there was a certain uh, respect for your elders. And if you had a group of men uh, and one was going to speak for them, almost certainly the oldest person is the one who's going to speak for everyone else. Because as the oldest, his age alone gave him rank among everyone else. Does that make sense? So just like when my father says, I have three sons, Kevin, Keith, and Kyle, that's in birth order, you know? And uh, they followed that logic as well. And so Peter is almost certainly the oldest of the disciples, and his brother Andrew is probably right behind him. Now, all throughout Scripture, when, the, when, when, when Jesus is, is, is conversing with the apostles, he speaks to Peter, and Peter asks questions, and Peter answers for them. And as a result, we make fun of Peter a lot because Peter always asks the dumb question and gets slammed around for it. However, in Peter's defense, I highly suspect that when Peter is saying, why don't we build these two temples here and, you know, and he embarrasses himself, there's two guys behind him going, hey, tell him this, hey, tell him this, hey, tell him this. You know, he's just the mouthpiece and he's taking the hit for everybody else and everybody else knows that. So when he's speaking to Peter, he's not just speaking to Peter all the time. He's speaking to the apostles. Okay. So that being said, um, yeah, yeah, Ron. Uh, how do you think Peter is here? Well, would, he, would he be in his better, better of, better of, um, uh, shall we say, north of sixty? No, I don't think so, uh, because he had a long career of preaching. After that, Christ is thirty-three at this point. Yeah, and I would be surprised if Peter is much older than that. I think it's possible he could have been as old as forty. Yeah. Uh, I doubt he was much older than that. Otherwise, you would have an old man following a young rabbi around. And I think that's less likely. Possible, but Probably less about maybe, uh, 45, maybe something like that. That, according to the Gospel of Evans, sure. We don't have any way of proving that. But yeah. Right. yeah. I, that was just a kind of a, shall we say, an educated guess there. Sure. I could They all had 20 and to 30 years worth of ministry after them, after, after Christ's ascension. And John went longer than that. So, you know, and he was the youngest or one of the youngest. Okay. Uh, well, according to my last th thing I said, I guess John was in the middle, wasn't he? Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's interesting that Matthew starts off by saying he called his 12 disciples. And this is the word in Greek that means uh, learner. They are students. So Matthew has been referring to them as his students at this point. 
uh, might be follower, might be close to disciple, you know. Uh, but now he says these are the names of the 12 apostles, and he changes that name, and it be, it's, the equivalent is delegate. He, they are now representatives of Christ. So before they've been following Christ around, Christ has been there, and they've been doing Christ's bidding in his presence. Now they're going out as a representative of Christ, speaking for Christ. So they've kind of had a, a promotion in rank, so to speak. Does it? Sh sure. Uh, but it's kind of like having a, a governor who represents the president. You know, you are, they are, they are a rank representative within an authority. Uh, so, and that's what apostle is. And so Christ is, this is graduation day. This is how teachers think of things. Uh, they have been following Christ around and learning at his feet. Now he is sending them out two by two to preach his message. And he has given him them the authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. Yeah. He's, he's given the power of the Holy Spirit to them. And so they are going to go perform these miracles as well in order to get everyone's attention and show that they are the authority speaking for Christ. And then they are going to repeat Christ's message that they have so painstakingly learned over the last two years or so. Does that make sense? Okay, so they're going out for this graduation. And Christ gives them a set of instructions that's pretty restrictive. And if, uh, if, if the rest of Christianity takes this restrictive you know, control, then it's, it, it, it kind of impedes the spread of the, doc, doc, the gospel, to be honest with you. you know? and, and there are all kinds of clues later in the gospel that kind of back that up. Uh, but we'll get to that. Okay, so uh, verses 5 through 15. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. So he's limiting where they go. They can't leave Jerusalem and they can't go into Samaria, which is not Jerusalem. They can't leave Israel. But they can't go into Samaria, which is about a quarter of Israel, you know. Uh, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, the good Jews. As you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take away any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Excuse me, do not take along any gold, silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Don't take luggage. Don't take provision. Don't pack a bag. Just go. That's a little scary. And I think that's the point. This is their graduation initiation. You know, he has been teaching them about the providence and grace of God. And he has given them the protection of the Holy Spirit in a most powerful way. And he says, trust in God. It is a test of their faith. And so he sends them out with nothing. Have faith in God. God is going to provide. Yes. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. So you're supposed to withdraw your peace from a house that is not friendly and gracious. Wow, interesting. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet. 
which is a Jewish tradition. Uh, when you leave a Gentile's house, you want to make yourself clean if you didn't touch anything, so you shake the dust off your feet so that you don't have to go through a ritual cleansing later. Uh, so he's telling them, if you, if you leave, you know, shake the dust off your feet and move on and don't have part of that. When you leave that home or town, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for, than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Wow, that's loaded. Okay. So they step out and they take all this faith on faith and God is going to provide for them and pave their way as they begin this ministry. It's a crucial point in the ministry. And if they fail, Christianity fails. It's kind of important that they do well. God would have to do something else to make his will come about. And so they could step out like this. Now later in scripture, and I should have this verse ready and I didn't think to get it, but Christ says, before I told you to go out without a bag, but now you can go with the bag and it's going to be that much better, you know? And, and he basically, because this is a one-time test deal for them, uh, he is not telling us to step out without any provision and expect God to provide for us when we go on our own mission of our own choosings. And there have been all kinds of Christians that kind of say that. I have had people say that, well, God said that go to the first rich Christian you come to and he should put you up. And I have heard of missionaries or, or uh, excuse me, evangelists that would suggest that they have a right to come in your home and sleep in your house anytime they want to. You know, because they're the man of God. Um, I think that's a misinterpretation of the scripture. God gave us a brain and as we fulfill his commission, we need to make preparations. We need to prepare our missionaries. We need to come up with money and, and visas and make things legal and proper and provide for their homes and do things right and, and keep peace with the, you know, the countries that we're, 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 we're uh, uh, evangelizing. If we just send people in cold, uh, I don't think that, it, it, well, I think it's proven to not be very effective. Uh, that's not to say that we should not be dependent upon God's provision. God is there. God provides. But God provides in a number of ways. And one of those ways that God provides is he gives us a means to provide for ourselves. Yeah. You know, we should not go out as sparrows waiting for someone to give us something to eat. You know, birds in the wilderness. Okay. And you agree with me on that? You're not going to argue with me or everything? Yes. <laughs> wow. I was so hoping for... I was hoping for conflict and, and things like that. Yeah, Lester is not even arguing. All right, just make me keep talking then. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, uh, verses 16 through 23. Excuse me, 17 through 23. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, the father his child, Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. And he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I believe that this 
is direct instructions to the apostles at the time, just like the previous passage. However, I think it still very much applies to us as well. There's, there's not a lot in there that doesn't ring true and hasn't over this, the last 2,000 years. Uh, people will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in the synagogues. Flogging means hitting them with a whip because they are blaspheming, talking about a Messiah that the Jews do not recognize. Uh, they will be brought to account for what they are teaching. Uh, and you'll be brought before governors and kings where they will give their testimony to the powers that be who are angry with them. You know, So even though they're being charged, that's kind of a ministry too. Uh, but he tells them not to worry when they're, arrest they're arrested uh, because the Lord is speaking through them. And then he says, brother will betray brother to death and father and child will bear against their parents. Uh, that, that's happened all, all the time. What? It's coming to me as like, uh, it's coming to me like uh, we're fighting in our families about Christianity and try to uh, push it on people and they inject it and have arguments and talk about it. Sure. Families have been fighting about religion and politics since the beginning of time. I think that's what they're talking about. Yeah. And that's what it's talking about. So they may not even get support from their own people. You know, I can see an apostle in court and uh, the uh, opposing uh, judge, the, the, the opposing Pharisee, brings in his grandfather to say, yeah. we are so disappointed in you, Jude. You know, uh, that, that's going to happen. Uh, he wants them to stand by their convictions. This is their graduation. They have to be able <sighs> There comes a time in everyone's faith when your faith stops being the faith of your parents and becomes your own. Wow. And I think that's what's happening here. They understand intellectually what they're faith is but when you're standing in front of the Messiah it's really easy to declare your allegiance but when you are being challenged by it when it is not in your best interest to stick to your guns do you stick to your guns then and that's when your faith really becomes your own uh, I was raised in a very sheltered Christian family. Uh, I thought the entire world was made up of Southern Baptists because those were the only people that I knew. Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists. I was raised in a household where the only music that was ever played was... <clears throat> contemporary gospel, not even country gospel, because those people were weird. <laughs> contemporary gospel music. And my father banned everything else. We didn't have a radio. Uh, when they invented Walkmans, where you could have a little earphone and, and a little small recorder yeah. and hide in your room and listen to music quietly on your own, I bought my first rock and roll tape and I was such a rebel <laughs> because I could hide it from my parents. They would not have been pleased. Uh, and looking back on it, my choice of music was quite terrible. Anyway, uh, it was all I could get my hands on. <laughs> yeah, you, you know how it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, at that time, during that sheltered period of my life, I knew nothing else but Christianity, but I had never been tested on my Christianity. And I was well-read. I was pretty versed. I was teaching a class in Sunday school by the time I was well, a junior in high school. I mean, you know, I've been doing this a long time. So I was teaching. And then when I was a junior in college, I left home. And I went to the University of Texas in Austin, which was, well... 
My uncle, who was a deacon at my church, told me that I was going to completely lose my faith because I was moving into basically hell in Austin, where I would be surrounded by wretched sinners who were going to drag me off and, and ruin my soul forever. And if I really wanted to protect my soul, I should just give up on that college education. I kid you not. And he had a college education. Really? I had a man with a degree telling me not to get a degree because it was going to ruin my faith. I guess he had very little little faith in, in, in the depth of my belief, I guess, at the time. He didn't think you could get one? Well, I don't know. Obtain one? So I got to I got to college and oh my goodness, was he right? There I couldn't find it. Well, actually there were a lot of Southern Baptists, but not immediately around me. And uh, suddenly I'm I, I'm everybody I meet is somebody strange and different and weird and sometimes from a totally different country. You know, uh, I I start I went to church because they, I, I would go out on Sundays in front of Jester Center dorms and there would be like nine van, church vans all in a row. You could pick your church by just jumping in the van. Pick your church by jumping in the van. And so I looked for, I walked down the row until I saw the word Baptist and I got in it. And it took me to a Baptist church and it was okay. And uh, they, they fed me donuts and I came back. And uh, the next week I went out and I found another Baptist church because I couldn't find that first van. And I went to a different Baptist church taking the van and ate donuts and came back. And after a while, I thought, this is kind of fun. And so I jumped into a Methodist van. And then I jumped into a Church of Christ van. Oh, my goodness, they don't have pianos there, did you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, then, and then I got radical, and I jumped into a Catholic van. And uh, that was different. That was different. It was totally unique experience for me. And, uh, and then I went to, I started going to the, 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 there are things called Bible chairs on campus. It's like a campus organizations for students where all of those denominations try to proselytize the students there. Well, of course, they all have these luncheons, see, and they all, they're smart enough to do them on different days. Baptist spaghetti was on Tuesday, by the way. Uh, and, the, and the Wesleyan chair, the, the Methodist, that was on Wednesday. And uh, the Catholics, I don't remember what day it was. I only went to that two or three different times. But I decided the Catholics weren't that bad. I sat down and talked to a priest for a while. And, uh, and I just kind of quizzed him. And, and I said, you know, explain to me your personal experience with Jesus Christ. When did you, you know, have this experience with Jesus Christ? And he explained a, a, a point of salvation. He described a salvation experience. It was, the old school word is the epiphany. But he didn't really, he used Catholic terminology and not Protestant terminology. I'm absolutely convinced the man was a born-again Christian. I am. Well, it sounds like it, too. Um, and so my, 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 my vision of Christianity was broadened. I also would go to parties with absolute atheists who found <laughs> out that I was a Christian, and they zoomed in on me and attacked me verbally the entire party. It was, enti it was very unpleasant. They lived in absolute anger against any Christian to the point that it wasn't that they didn't believe, it's that they hatefully believed. Does that make sense? And that talk one, about it here, beware of men, but, that, be, but do not feel fear of Sure. And I learned, I, I was fearful to begin with. I, I will not lie. Uh, it was a whole new world and I didn't know where I was. And people would ask me questions that I'd never thought out about before. Lots of them. And I didn't have answers for that atheist the first time he peppered me with all these questions. And I'm going, you know, that's an interesting point you made there. Let me think about that. And I had to go dig through my scripture and decide why I thought that. Because I always thought that because somebody told me that. Why do I believe that Christ is the Son of God? Why do I believe that there is a God? Why do I believe that so-and-so? Why do I want to do this? And I really kind of embraced Christian apologetics, and I started doing a lot of reading so that I could answer those questions, not so much to defend myself against that atheist at that party I met, but just so that I had the right answer. It was for me. You know what I mean? 
Not that my faith was in question, but I needed to be able to understand my own faith. Kind of, uh, when I was in uh, Saudi Arabia, right? And yeah. They, they said, and don't tell anybody you're a Christian, right? And don't read, and don't carry your Bible. Well, I carry my Bible anyway. So one time, this, uh, I can't even look at it or whatever. So anyways, they came up to me and said, uh, are you a Christian? I kind of hesitated a little bit, you know. So I go, mm, yes, I am. You know, turn around and walk away, you know. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I hesitated for a minute. Yeah. You know, it kind of like, oh, no, they're going to take me and beat me to death. <laughs> I think they figured you were a Christian just because of what you look like in Saudi Arabia. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's interesting uh, looking at this, the verses that we just read where Christ talks about how they're going to be persecuted. That this was pretty common in every country with any religion that was not, Lester, the state religion. Uh, Lester's been talking about, is it, is it Greece? Is that where she is? Greece. Greece. In Greece, Greek Orthodox Catholics are the state religion, and, and the laws support the church year. And so the church is kind of embedded into their legal system. Well, that is, that's actually more common of what the world is like than what the United States is. The United States is really strangely uh, unique in that we have uh, uh, freedom of religion. In fact, the United States, people say we we were formed as a nation because of freedom of religion. No, we weren't. The the Puritans, all those Englishmen that poured into New England during the colonial period, they were not interested in freedom of religion. They wanted religious superiority. They wanted to be free of the Church of England, and they wanted to have their own version of Christianity, and they wanted to enforce their own version of Christianity. It was a matter of power. It was not a matter of freedom. And each of the colonies, oh my goodness, kind of had a similar story. And, and uh, you know, it, we, we, so... It's still that way today, though. Huh? It's still that way today. Well, we have this constitution. I know, but I'm saying uh, religions, people say that our religions are the best. Yes. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, we're all elitist. I yeah. agree with that. That's true. Uh but then, you know, uh, even when the Puritans were there uh, in Plymouth, the, I think it was the third year, there were some uh, sailors that were in Plymouth for Easter. Oh, Christmas, excuse me. And in England, on Christmas, it is common to go out and take the day off and goof off and play ball and have a good time. But the Puritans thought that for Christi- Christmas was not a big religious holiday. You were just supposed to pray. And so these sailors on Christmas Day, because they had the day off and they had no duties at the, at, the, at the ship where they were on, they got up a ball game out on the pier there, or out on the, on the dock. And so they're playing soccer or whatever the version was then. And uh, William Brewster walked down, chastised them all, threatened them with being locked up, and took up the ball because there shall be no fun on Christmas in his county, you know, or in Plymouth. Uh, But see, it was about power and authority. The very first incident, and there were other religions did the same thing. Uh, uh, Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania as a colony was established by Quakers, and the Quakers ran it. And when the Puritans started moving into Pennsylvania, they sent them to the very back of the, of the, of the uh, colony, which is really, really large, so that they would be a buffer between the Indians. They wanted those Puritans that they couldn't stand way off over there so that the Indians would kill them before they got to honest Christian civilization. I'm not joking. These are what nonviolent Quakers decided to do. Uh, it, it's been that way. The very first incident of genuine legal religious freedom was uh, in Rhode Island when uh, Roger Williams, who was kind of an Anabaptist and running away from both Puritans and Quakers, 
and basically he wrote into his constitution, um, everyone will have free to worship as he sees fit or not if he chooses to. He wrote it in that you don't have to go to church. First time, I'm pretty sure, ever. Now, there have been many European countries that have religious tolerance. They will have a state church, but then let those other churches go along and they're okay. But those other churches have to ask permission, and then they'll approve it, and then you're okay. But there's a state church, and when the state church has a holiday, so does the state. Does that make sense? So federal Christmas holiday, federal Easter holiday. Everybody's forced to shut down for Easter because we've got to keep the churches happy. You know, that, that's what would happen. Um, Excuse me? We used to do something like that. When we did, but it was on a municipal basis. It was a smaller area. Yeah. And often it's kind of voluntary. And now I don't think there's anything compulsive. You know, we used to have nothing to be open on Sunday. Now everyone's open. So. Uh, I think market forces drove a lot of it because everybody was Christian and they were going to church on Sunday. So if they're at church, they're not in a store. So you might as well chose the store and save your expenses. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, there's a market on Sunday, so they're going to open the store. The only churches that are, the only businesses that are closed on Sunday now are due to religious convictions that I can tell, which is Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, because they're both run by Christian families. You say it's less Christian now than it was before? Without any doubt. Yeah. I think the last survey I said, I think it was 40% of people believe in Christ now in the United States. Yeah. It was supposed to be 75, 80. Okay. Have we exhausted that? Yeah. All right. 24 through 33. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? What an interesting paragraph. Do, so do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed are hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the ruse. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So Christ gives uh, a kind of a set of warnings A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. So the apostles are the apostles of Christ, and they need to be like Christ. They can't be greater than Christ. Isn't that what he's saying? Right. So they take their power from Christ. They need to depend upon Christ. If the head of the house is called Beelzebub, which is the devil, how much more the members of the household? So if you know that the house is of, of the devil and, every, and this guy's from there, then you need to distrust him too. But don't, don't be afraid of the one. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a deal, though. wasn't... Uh... God saying, uh, and don't follow the wall of Moses, follow the wall of me now. Yes, but they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, but, well, they're, two, they're kind of the same thing, but totally different, too. Uh, 
They need to fulfill the, the, the heart of the law and not the letter of the law. Uh, and then he says, you know, what, what's going to be hidden is going to come out. So if people are keeping secrets, if people are plotting against you, that's all going to come out. Don't keep secrets. Tell the truth. Uh, stick to your guns. Say what you need to say. And then let the chips fall where they may. And then he says, God is in control. Here's the somewhat disturbing thought. He says, you know, they can hurt your body, but they can't hurt your soul. So, Rod, when the bullies are beating you up, know that they can't hurt you, just your body. As a guy that's been punched a few times, that's a really hard lesson to embrace. Right, and in the end, Christ is saying it's your soul that's important. It's not your body. Right. So if they torture you, chop off three fingers, you know, you're only here for a certain amount of time, and you're going to get your fingers back in heaven. So don't worry about it. It's a, it's a hard lesson, I think, particularly for people that are looking at their hand right now, and they only have a couple of fingers on it. Uh, you know, it... it it's hard to embrace that loss. Uh, but that's the message. It's, 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 he's asking for complete dependence upon Christ's providence, even to the point of your own pain and suffering. He said that you prevail to the end. Say again? That you prevail to the end. Hold on to the end. Yes. Hold, trust in me. You know. So don't break. Be strong. Notice he says he knows when the sparrows fall, but he doesn't say they're not going to fall. Right. You know. Okay, so so he gives this this big warning, and then uh, he basically says, "Well, he tells them not to fear slander, being called contentious names. He tells them not to fear failure. So even if they fail." God is still in it, and God will still prevail. It's not personal. It's, you know, God has his hand on it. Not to feel fear physical attack. can hurt your body, but it can't, shouldn't hurt your soul. And uh, don't sin. And then he says not to fear abandonment, because Christ is going to be there always. That's kind of the summary of those warnings. Uh, and then, uh, and I took that from a commentary, by the way. I do steal from other people occasionally. Uh, verse 34, do not suppose that I will come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And here he is quoting the Old Testament, and I am looking at, where is it from? Isaiah. So he's quoting Isaiah. Uh, he is the son of man who's going to turn man against his father, daughter against his mother, and so it cause all this contention. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. But if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So, we need to love God more than our family. What's that? We need to love God more than our family. Definitely. Do I like family coming in second or third or 
Yeah, I think second or third. Further down the line. <laughs> uh, that's hard. Yeah, that is. There, there are times where you know when my when my youngest son was first born. For that first year, uh, when I was, and he he had all kinds of health conditions, and we spent a lot of time in a hospital. I became viciously supportive of him. I uh, was aggressive with doctors and other people. Uh, I would, I you know, don't insult my kid. I'll punch you in the face. I was I was on edge all the time. If you had come to me and said, you need to love someone else more than you love this baby, I'm not sure you would have gotten far with me then. No, totally not. I'm not. No, it's not saying that you're loving your family to say it. It's saying it's putting your family in the first slot. Yeah. Yes, I think God should come first. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's a sin, but I also think that love changes over time. And yeah. I think you love your children differently when they're small than you do when they're old, older. Yeah, it, it changes. I think the love is still there. Love is nuanced. And, and God should come first. And you really can't love your family until you truly love God. I think loving God first shows you how to love your family. I think you love your family more when you love God first. Does that make sense? I, I, I really, I, I've often struggled with verses like this. Uh, yeah, me too. I'll go along with you. So we have to be willing to sacrifice for God. And I think he wants our obedience, but he wants our sacrifice. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says, you know, I think the if you reward a prophet for a prophet's sake, then you get a prophet's reward. But if you reward someone for God's sake, then God rewards you. What does that mean? Say that again. Explain the last paragraph in the in the book. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. But if anyone, and I said but, the word is and, if anyone gives any, even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So even if you do a small thing for someone, not for them, but because of God, then that's a greater reward. What does that mean? What, what, what verse you got? About 40. 40 through 42. Yeah, 40. 40 through 42. Okay, here's, here's the gospel according to Evan. That's my interpretation here. Uh... I know of folks, I won't call out names, who would invite the preacher to dinner only when she has somebody else coming to dinner that she's trying to impress. And if she invites the preacher and the preacher will impress that person, then she's going to show the preacher honor because she's getting something. Does that make sense? They honor the preacher when they need something out of the preacher. Well, I'm not going to look at a preacher and say you shouldn't do things for people when they ask you to. You know, I've, I've had my preacher sign some documents for me the other day because I need a witness. Yes, yes, Pastor, I acknowledge that. I know you're listening. Uh, but... I'm not going to get any great reward for honoring the preacher for my own personal selfish interests. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And so I will get my own personal selfish interests met, but God isn't going to give me a jewel in my crown for being nice to the pastor so that the pastor will be nice to me. I have this very earthbound lateral exchange of honor. Does that make sense? Yeah. However... 
if I take poor Ron and I do something nice for poor Ron, not because, not because I like Ron, I don't even like Ron. Uh, I know that Ron is a child of God and, and Ron is doing God's work. So I'm going to honor Ron and help him in his little ministry just to help that ministry go on, even though I find Ron really annoying. <laughs> God, according to this verse, would honor that more than what I would do for the preacher because I want him to do me a favor. Does that make sense? It's all about the attention of your actions. It's what's in your heart. And it's, if, it, you know, if, if you're going to be nice for selfish reasons, all you're going to get is whatever the selfish deal was you're after. In other words, you're just doing it selfishly. And not yes. For, not for, uh, uh, shall we say... Uh, not for Christ's sake. Yes. You're, yeah. you're the one asking, asking for the glory instead of giving God the glory as you, as you do whatever you're doing. Will you sum that up nicely? Thank you, Roman. Yeah, that I talk smack about you on the air and everything. Okay. Uh, and that wraps up chapter 10. And once again, this is a direct instruction to the apostles on their first mission out so that they can prove themselves and learn about the providence of grace. It's not necessarily a prescription of what evangelical ministry should look like. However, all of the warnings about what people are like and what we're going to endure and how we should endure it, that we can apply to our lives. However, if you're going out on a missionary trip, I highly recommend that you pack a bag and take some cash. Fair enough? Okay. With that, assuming that I am healthy next week, we will begin chapter 11, and I am signing off.